Um, so welcome everyone to the first ever CMS podcast, the Critical Interference Podcast. Uh, and CMS is the Center for Environment and Development Studies. Uh, it's a joint university center between Uppsala University and the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences here in Uppsala, Sweden. Uh, and CMS has since 1992 been working to save the world with sustainability courses, uh, research and outreach, uh, and different projects and activities. Um, and a small disclaimer in all of this, the views expressed and the questions raised here is in no way officially representing CMS, Uppsala University or SLU. Uh, but with that said, it's very much an open space where we freely can express ourselves, test ideas, and discuss important issues that are key for the survival uh, and the decent good life uh, for this planet and us. So why do we want to do a podcast at CMS? Um, maybe uh, everybody's doing a podcast. Why, why do we need a CMS podcast? Uh, and maybe something also on what we will focus on in the podcast. Um, so it's live here from Uppsala, Sweden. Uh, that's where I'm based. Jan, you're, you're in Amsterdam, right? In the yes, Netherlands? Right. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, we're bringing in different guests from all over the world. Um, and also to have this critical conversation uh, to have a more disruptive discussion or try to reach further uh, in how to work with these issues uh, and maybe, maybe change the world one small, small step at a time uh, by reaching new audiences or reaching people that have always been involved in CMS and have uh, a lot of time to listen to podcasts, perhaps. Um, yeah, um, we also want to focus on different issues for different topics. I think, Jan, you cover so many different things. So, so we will get into all sorts of things um, uh, from, yeah, sustainability, climate, justice, all sorts of things, education, art. Um, and we, I also wanted to have it on Friday afternoon to get this, even if most of us, uh, in, at least in the university world, is working from home to get this Friday afternoon vibe, although we might want to get out of our work uh, situation and, and get into our free time, but uh, to get that sense as well. Um, yeah, and I think also, Jan, uh, feel free to, to jump in and interrupt me. We don't, uh, you don't have to be polite with me. I'll try to be polite with you and your answers, but, <laughs> but interrupt if you need to, and, uh, or just ask if I need to explain something in the questions that is unclear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I should also say that this podcast was made with the Anchor platform and the app. And you can find our podcast uh, with your regular distributors, uh, but also as a video on YouTube. Uh, so you can also watch us while we talk. Uh, and you can leave voice messages to us at the anchor.fm slash CMUS page, which is our own podcast page. So you just do that voice message thing and then, then we'll try to listen to that and maybe we can connect to your listeners. Uh, along the way as we get more messages as well. But then of course, we are also on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and YouTube, so you can interact there as well. Okay, so that's all the, the housekeeping out of the way, the long introduction. So let's get starting uh, started by welcoming our first guest to our first podcast, Jan van Böckel. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, and you're a Dutch, Dutch artist, educator, and researcher. Um, so, and you're recently appointed as Professor of Art and Sustainability at the Research uh, Center for Art and Society at the Hanse University of Applied Sciences in Groningen. 
trying to do my but, Dutch pronunciation there. Uh, <laughs> but you're yeah. also here in this context as a long time CMS friend and collaborator and also with the climate assistance conferences. So it's great to have you here, as I said in the when we did the warm up uh, also that I wish we had more time, but let, let's maybe come back to this, some of the issues we can't cover today. Uh, and maybe also, I think maybe we should, because you always have such great recommendations for books or interesting articles oh. and reading. Uh, mm -hmm. So maybe we can focus on uh, maybe a book next time and go deeper into that perhaps. Mm, yeah. um, but also we want to say also that you more than your employment, more than your CV. So you're a very knowledgeable, wise, curious human being. Uh, and I really enjoy talking to you when you spend time here in Uppsala. Uh, and, and some of those uh, sessions when we sat down on this coffee place here in the corner, just where I live, uh, that, that was a podcast. Each conversation would have been a great podcast in its own right. Uh, so, yeah. Okay, so let's get started with you, uh, your life, your story, story coming into this world and also getting involved with the things you've been working on, uh, but also finding your voice and passions in life. So feel free to start at whatever age or, or memory or story that, that kind of shaped you and introducing yourself in that way. Mm, well, thank you, Daniel. It's also my pleasure to be here in this conversation. And also like you referred to the, the, the meetings that we had uh, uh, in Uppsala, as you and other people of Samus were full of conviviality of uh, having a good time together and also touching on the you know, essential or meaningful subjects as we went along. But maybe, let, yeah, let's see where in, in, in sort of moments in life that are critical. I think one of the, if you just ask me like this, I think one of the moments that was for me uh, sort of critical was at the, when I was at the high school, when um, I had this certain ability, you might say, to draw well or interesting. Uh, had an art teacher and um, I was considering should I do uh, uh, go to art school or should I study anthropology or maybe some kind of uh, natural science and I asked my art teacher um, and um, he said well Jan uh, you, you can study well so why don't you do some kind of technical study and you can always do art on the side and uh, you don't have to lose it but uh, and I, I, I kind of followed up on that advice and uh, don't know if I regret it because uh, if I would have been immersed in the art world right away, I would have been quite a different person. So I, I, I took it away the detour that I first studied uh, cultural anthropology here in the Netherlands and did also research uh, with uh, indigenous peoples in uh, the United States, which I also welcome as uh, an experience in my life that uh, was meaningful. So it, it's if one looks back at where one is at life, I think to some degree it all makes sense. Makes sense, or that I came into the art uh, environment much later. I mean, it's always been a relevant uh, force in my life. But I'm now fully uh, immersed in an, uh, an art academy called Minerva. So, but but maybe the the, the part of studying cultural anthropology, uh, working with indigenous peoples, being in solidarity campaigns, working for human rights also to a large extent informed my art and my view on art. And maybe to, to just sketch a bit that um, when I had completed my, um, my uh, master degree in uh, cultural anthropology, I, I spent some years working at the Netherlands Center for Indigenous Peoples, first as a volunteer and later as a head of communication. And um, 
something I got out of it was that there was so much similarity I found between worldviews that I uh, got to appreciate from indigenous representatives coming to the Netherlands or reading about their work or meeting them. And uh, also to see, um, yeah, that there was um, something in it that, that resonated with, for example, views like people like Arnenes or people in the radical uh, ecology movement. Uh, it's maybe this basic idea that that you might summarize it that the earth doesn't belong to us we belong to the earth it's sort of a turning upside down that we are part of something larger larger context and being part of this larger context means that you you, you pay respect to to other living beings to to the the the, the inquisies of of life other life systems and that you it's basically an attitude of humbleness so um and for example, the thought that, for example, of uh, indigenous peoples in the um, Turtle Islands, like in uh, the Haudenosaunee, that they have this idea that if you make profound decisions uh, as, as a group or as an individual, that you should tr try to make an effort to consider what the impact of your decisions is going to be seven generations in the future. And that is a, quite a different way of, of measuring what your impact is going to be that it is not like with politicians in the west that you, you it's the frame of maybe, what is it four years or so or six years or the, your political career but, but that you, your responsibility is to the seventh generation so it, it's it's both in the here and now it's a different way of this humble respectful relationship to other uh, living beings the non-human world but it's also this other time perspective that uh, maybe our presence on the earth is, is just a part of something larger that's going on, that there's ancestors before you and people coming after you. And that uh, that interest fueled my um, uh, interest together with uh, my partner, Cecile, that to also live for some time, maybe in a more wild environment to, when we had small children. So then we moved for some time to Sweden uh, and we lived uh, near uh, Hellefors in, in the woods. Uh, uh, you know, you're Swedish yourself, but this is an area where it's uh, lynx and bear and wolf. And so it, it was quite, we didn't see any of those uh, like um, more uh, iconic uh, creatures. But somehow just the idea that they are present, they are there. You might hear the sounds in the evening. And so. But that has been very informative, this, um, this living out in the woods. And also... Uh, there I maybe started developing my interest in art and especially art education more substantially because I've been always been painting and drawing more on the side. But in Hellefors, people asked me uh, uh, if I would be interested to set up a, a painting group and we could start and get funding through uh, ABF, uh, the Social Democratic Organization for Education. And um, this became larger, more groups. and. Um, then they asked me if I would like to be a teacher, uh, even where I was not like educated as a teacher, not the behörigheit, the, 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 the ability, the, 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 yeah, the stamp, if you will, that you are authorized to be a teacher. So I went with my art box with paints and clay and what have you to different schools in the area of Hellefors to work with art and young people. And then what I tried to do is take children out of the classroom into the uh, natural world and in the beginning this was a bit of a problem because uh, if you do that who is responsible because you leave the school school premises and how is it with the insur insurance if somebody yeah, slips and, and breaks a leg or so so 
So it was not so easy to do that. But once I started to do that, uh, it became like an opening. Also, the children in the beginning, they would run in all directions because it was total freedom and they were just very excited. But to get them also to tune in, to, to be attentive to, to the natural world, to take took a bit more effort. When I was doing this, uh, I came across the writings of a woman in Finland, uh, Miri Helga Mantra, who coined this concept of arts-based environmental education. And this was for me like, a, yeah, what's the word? Aha, aha erlebnis or the a certain uh, spark of, of lightning because it, it suddenly connected these three domains that I've always been interested in. It's art, ecology and education and how they all three can uh, reinforce each other. So I developed a correspondence with Mary Helga and then she was then a retired art teacher, also art therapist in Finland, in Helsinki, and she invited me over. And then when I was there, I was so impressed about what we were doing with children in the after curricular hours, like on Wednesday afternoons or in the weekends, really full immersion um, in art and artistic practice, artistic activities in, in the natural environment, also in the built environment. And then she invited me to, she said, Jan, why wouldn't you, uh, would you be interested to do a PhD in this subject or a doctor of arts? And then I was a bit surprised because you know, my background was cultural anthropology, but you can move in sideways uh, from another field. And uh, she said, yeah, we really need somebody to, to take us to another level because uh, so many practitioners of art-based environmental education in Finland or elsewhere, they are very passionate. They fully uh, throw themselves into this and they, they're very excited, but it's only uh, limited maybe the, the way they have thought about it, the pedagogical bearings of these activities. So what way do people, children or adults uh, learn? What, what is the epistemology? What's the way you, you build knowledge or make meaning doing this? And if we could uh, articulate this more profoundly then maybe the le legitimacy of this practice will heighten that it is not just pl play or having fun in nature, but there's some very meaningful things going on. So mm -hmm. I kind of took that as a mission and then I got funding first from the Finnish Cultural Foundation for a year. And once in Helsinki that moved into being uh, appointed as a research assistant. And then I had the, yeah, the, the big pleasure or the privilege to, 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 to study the subject, to engage with the subject for about six years. Also doing different things in between like with Cecile, I translated the book, um, The Last Child in the Woods of Richard Louvre into Dutch. The, the subtitle is uh, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. This idea that children basically lack or are deprived of something very profound. They have a deficit if they have no access or little access to nature. So yeah, that, that has been kind of my trajectory since then. And maybe just, just to, to finish this, when I, when I had the degree in 2013 of Doctor of the Arts with my publication At the Hearts of Arts and Earth. I found that it is uh, it was difficult to get this subject landed in, for example, the Netherlands or other parts of Europe. It, it felt more uh, fitting in a way in Finland, but also Sweden, maybe because of the, that the natural environment is more present to work with this. But so I, I found myself working a bit, you might say, on the outskirts or the periphery of Europe, some, sometime in Iceland, sometime in Estonia. Some, the last year in Sweden, I was partly as a visiting uh, teacher at Samus, working with climate and art uh, issues. And in uh, Göteborg, in uh, Gothenburg, at the uh, Art Academy there. 
And now finally, to my surprise, or not as finally, but uh, suddenly there was this opening of a professorship in art and sustainability in the Netherlands. And sort of, it seems a bit like the world is catching up a bit that the subject that was sort of unthinkable like, like a decade ago, suddenly comes more into, into the center. So I'm just starting to see what this means to be in this position and how I can work with this in a Dutch academic environment. Yeah, um, and we should say as well that your dissertation, which is a formal book as well, that, that's available for free as a PDF on your webpage as well. So we'll, we'll yeah. put the links to that in the description of this episode as well. So you can, it's like a four or 500 page read. So, so it's uh, it's not an afternoon or a weekend read, but but it's, uh, it's a really great resource. Uh, and there's more things also on your webpage. That's really good. Um, yeah, and I'm thinking also here um, with how this, field kind of changes uh, around this. I remember working with the first climate existence conference, it was in Swedish then only, in two, 2008. Uh, and we had found a couple of books, a couple of writers that were, that were kind of connecting these dots. And now, uh, 12 years later, so many, so many things exist out there. Uh, not only books, but also people that have devoted their full careers to this. But I think also even university leadership or, or department management leadership have discovered kind of not only having these issues or employing people as kind of symbolic acts or something that they do on a surface level. I think people are also uh, that are not, uh, would not be they, they don't have this experience themselves or they don't have this academic background, but they're starting to realize the value of this and how that also raises the quality of education or how it changes how you look upon or work with these issues. So, uh, so that's very different from now. Um, maybe a bit briefer in all of this and connecting back also to the first question as a follow-up. Uh, I mean, uh, people, places, books, films, works of art, uh, that kind of influenced you or things like these, these are the things uh, that, that uh, listeners can take with them as well um, after this. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a few, but a, a book that has been, I think, uh, that comes back time and again to me or also in, in my teaching is the book from um, the 70s, the mid 70s, and it's, it has this uh, sort of... Um, hippie kind of title, uh, it is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persich. That has been a very interesting, I've read it a few times. And also the sequel, it's called Lila. Uh, and the first one is, uh, so the, the, the Zen and the Arts is an uh, inquiry into uh, what quality is uh, and value. And the, the other book, uh, Lila, is more about ethics, the, the metaphysics of ethics. But maybe what this book about, it's, it's, the storyline is that a father, uh, it's, it's kind of autobiographical, that he is taking this uh, motor trip with his son, Chris, uh, across the continent. And as he is doing so, he is being followed by a ghost called Phaedrus. And this ghost, uh, which uh, manifests himself from time to time in the story, but is... Uh, the former self of uh, the main author. So it's uh, as you uh, unpack the story further, you learn that uh, at some point the main character, the father, has, has had uh, electroshock treatments because he couldn't maintain himself in acad academia. And uh, the, the Phaedrus, the, the ghost following him, is his former self before the, the electroshock treatment. And then, yeah, it's a bit a spoiler, but <laughs> towards the end, 
they, they reconcile it with each other. But there's a lot happening in this book. It's both on the anecdotal level, like the sort of the small episodes. And just to give you an example of uh, uh, that I sometimes refer to with students, it's, it's when um, Piersig, the, the main character, is telling about the time in his uh, former self before the electoral uh, treatment. That he was a teacher in rhetorics, uh, so the, 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 how to uh, present an argument in writing or speaking more eloquently, the, 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 the crafting uh, of text uh, presentation. So he was a teacher of rhetorics and then he, uh, he had an assignment with students where he asked the students to um, write a, a short story about uh, the city of Bozeman, Montana, where he was teaching. And most of the students were able to do that with less or more uh, quality to it. But there was one student who said, uh, came to, back to him and said, she said, I, I cannot do this. It's, uh, I cannot come to, on any subject. And then he got a bit annoyed and he said, well, well maybe you shouldn't write about uh, the whole city of uh, Bozeman, but write about the main street, make your story about the main street. And uh, another week passed and she came back again frustrated, had nothing written down on paper. Then he really got irritated and he said, well, if you still cannot write about this street, uh, just take, take any building, take the town hall, and start uh, describing the front of the town hall, the city hall. The start with the left brick uh, on the bottom side, and work your way upward. And then uh, a few days later, she came with an essay of 30 pages on this uh, front of the building. Suddenly she could narrow her focus to this brick and that was for her a point of entry to, uh, to uh, yeah, unpack or to unfold something that she was having with her. So, the thing about, there's so much, I think, such in the story, one is that you can access something in yourself if you, if somehow this is evoked or pulled forward uh, in the right way. I mean, it could also have been that when he said, uh, for God's sake, right about the front of the city hall, that she would have totally sort of collapsed and uh, shut off. But yeah. it, it, it was something that, that propelled her to do something. But it is also, I think, about working with yeah, resistance, overcoming resistance and the value of overcoming resistance in education. So maybe not taking the, the route that is, uh, another route might be, you, you, you could write a, sh a short story about any subject that you find meaningful, but often these kind of, everything is possible, anything goes, is more limiting in a way because people cannot get into this creative process. So it also teaches you something about the value of uh, uh, frames or limitations or what you might call enabling constraints so that, that the constraints only write about the city, the front, the, 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 the facades of the, the city hall. That's very narrowing it down, but it's all, it is a, something that enables, that affords for writing maybe a more interesting story. So. It, I, I sometimes share this with students because if they are looking for a, a research question or a research topic, they have very much difficulty in, from this big cloud of subjects of, that they were interested in to, to narrow it down to maybe to find that brick in the wall to base your story on and to amplify from that further. But that's, there's many more of these uh, stories in the book. One thing is uh, also, uh, I can go endlessly on about the book, <laughs> but uh, like, at one point in that travel, uh, Chris and um, of, uh, uh, Piersig and Chris, the sun, come to the crater lake. And it's a beautiful and uh, it's all very neat. And he, he, he gives this sort of funny twist. He said there should be some rubbish around, so like everywhere there's rubbish. 
at that time in the near wilderness. Somehow here it's all very uh, nice and, and uh, well uh, maintained. And it is a bit, in a way, too disturbs me that it is a bit too nice. And uh, then they go to this lake and then Chris starts crying and says, why are all these people here? And uh, sort of that everything is sort of direct, the attention is directed, like, look here, here is a scenic view mm. on the crater lake. And that totally destroys um, the, the meaningfulness of the event, even though it is a beautiful spot. And that makes him uh, reflect that uh, quality the, so Pierce writes, quality is something that you perceive from the corner of your eye. And that's, I think that's also a very interesting point is more peripheral vision. So if you get presented something right out there, it's, it's totally accessible, obvious, and there are arrows pointing you there is where you should put your attention. It kind of kills the experience. But if you come across something that happens by coincidence, that overwhelms you, out of the blue it comes and you make meaning of it, that's where you... More, maybe more um, able to touch, uh, relate to quality because of this. It is not organized for you in a way. It's not um, ordered. It, or it's not like um, presented to you if, as if you buy a ticket at the, at the cinema. Mm. Yeah. So, um, book, um, yeah. Um, and there's so many other things as well that I know that you know a lot about, but maybe we can come back to that as well, as I said in a later podcast. And, and it seems like a book I should read. We traveled across the US and Canada. That was maybe 15 years ago, 2015 years actually. And Crater Lake is one of those very strange places. Uh, you arrive in daytime and and you have these uh, ravens that, that are kind of accustomed to tourists and they, they they don't, they don't really beg for food, but they hang around. So mm -hmm. they have an interest of humans, but also, of course, an interest in food. So it's this, this bird presence uh, there in the parking lot that I remember vividly, but also in the night when we camped there uh, and it was these huge logs. So it was like this wild camp, not this European camping style. Uh, we had a tent and a, every campsite had a fireplace and it was free wood and, and that kind of special feeling, but also the crater lake in itself, a very like alien place almost with this mm. island in the middle of the crater. Uh, so we didn't go to the island. It was some kind of uh, boat special thing that we didn't take, but, it, but it's a very strange, strange place with a lot of yeah. different memories from that oh. as well. Uh, we also passed through Bozeman, but I don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any <laughs> Bozeman memories in all of that. Uh, but let's return to this as well with uh, one of the other questions. And we I've kind of contradicted this and you contradicted this as well. But we'll go into that question anyways, because, yeah, we can hold two thoughts at the same time in our heads. <laughs> so with education research, the university, you worked long experience within this field. And I also did this at CMS and um, had different experiences and different things we worked with and, and lived through. Maybe we can say that. Uh, so, I mean... There's so many inspiring examples and, and uh, people and places, and we touched about it, that as, touched upon that in the conversation. But now, as well, with sustainability and uh, with climate change and so many different um, topics, everybody is doing this. Uh, and you have a university course and maybe tourist destination. You, you, you just add sustainability to that. Mm -hmm. And, and it's design, but then you add sustainable design and it's art. I mean, you, you can tack sustainability or climate on to anything uh, and I'm thinking also about Tim Mingle's lecture sustainability is everything or something like that that he held last year here in uh, Stockholm I think it was last autumn last yeah. year uh, so 
how can any meaningful work for sustainability actually get done uh, is, the, is this kind of surface sustainability or climate, is, the, is that something that stands in the way of meaningful work or, or is that actually an opening and an opportunity that so many people are actually wanting to do this uh, and getting involved with, with these issues that you have worked a long time with and I also worked a long time with? Mm -hmm. I, I think so, but the way I look on it is um, it's inspired by this uh, idea first in a way developed by Alistair McIntosh when he wrote his book uh, Soil and Soul and then Satish Kumar this idea of soil, soul and societies. Satish Kumar is, is the one the person who started um, Schumacher College and uh, resurgence and uh, Satish was looking for another way to to frame or maybe frame is the wrong word, to articulate what sustainability is about. It came with this triad of uh, soil, so the, the earth, what enables uh, growth, where our food comes from. And Dalsi might take it more metaphorically, but the soil is like the feeding, the, the, the point of nourishment for anything that you, you start from the soil, but very rooting down, starting with the basis. And then the soul in the center, the, the, that if our soul is not thriving, if our soul is not sort of acknowledged, then uh, yeah, what meaning does sustainability have? It, it, it's not sort of excluding our own well-being. And then the society is maybe the more obvious level of how you relate what is developed with the soil and with, through the soil, soul uh, in, in a more social context. So I, th I think he kind of took it as an alternative to the other triad that you would hear of people, planet and profit which is more like an anthropocentric point of view, especially the, the profit making, that sustainability is okay as long as it, it brings profit. And um, yes, so I, I would say maybe one way to approach this is that the usual way of thinking about sustainability is you have these three pillars of ecology, economy, and society, and sustainability should work on all these three levels and so not related with each other, which is of course in itself important that uh, that these efforts should have this sustainability thinking in it. But what's often been said is that there's it's kind of like a fourth pillar is lacking, which is culture. Sort of uh, the cultural dimension of, of thinking about sustainability. And I think one could put in this cultural dimension also the idea of education. And that I think where, where things maybe get more, um, yeah, for me, interesting or um, things may start moving. That, that's an idea of uh, Stefan Sterling, I think the first one uh, uh, thinker about education, where he said, we have so much this idea of education for sustainable development, education for sustainability or so. And it is the idea that education is somehow outside the whole field of where sustainability is happening. Mm. And then he would suggest uh, a maybe more fitting term and that would be sustainable education. So not sustainability, education for sustainability, but sustainable education, that education in itself as a practice, as a way of relating to the world, itself should be part and parcel of, of a, a transition to sustainability. And I think that the resonates with this idea of Tim Ingold with the sustainability of everything. But how does education become if it is sustainable education? So what does that mean? And I, for me, again, there is this dimension of the soul, which is so important that, um, um, and this is for me on many different levels that, uh, that maybe uh, also in relationship to art, that uh, the soul, um, if we foreground the soul, the, so 
it, it's often seen as a religious term or seen in a Christian context, but I think one could also take it wider and uh, that this soul is um, something, you might see it as a kind of uh, uh, fire that you kindle or some kind of uh, thing that, that keeps you going and um, something very dear, also where your vulnerability is if, if you're sort of in the situations where uh, situations related to uh, feelings or emotions are dealt with that you are able to, to maintain or you, you can face these kind of situations. So, so I think the, in the urgent times that we're living today, or the, the, the urgency of today, the climate emergency, the, the subjects that we, we talked or touched upon at the climate emergency conferences also, that this is uh, in many respects uh, very uh, demanding for people uh, working with this because um, I mean the, often the news is uh, catching up that things in the world are uh, turn out worse than people had anticipated that it's going in the wrong direction and it's going in the wrong direction fast uh, quickly so just an example but there are many but uh, the amount of animals is like a billion that died in the fires in, uh, in Australia and, mm. I mean the horror of it all uh, to uh, be able to uh, face this to, to not say well there's so much bad news on the on the television or through the social media I just turn out or turn off and I, I just try to live a happy life so the, the ability to still not deny it to, uh, to, 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 to accept or to face that these things are happening and at the same time to keep your soul uh, uh, intact or keep your soul in, in a balanced way is I think one of the, the if not the, the major sustainability issue that we face today, especially with younger people. So, for example, the, the one of the big paradoxes I would say of, that we have now is that if you know that the situation of the world is such uh, in a such a dire um, uh, situation, uh, what does that mean for young people to do any future uh, planning? So, what does it mean, for example, thinking about uh, raising a family that? But you get movements like the birth strike movement that young people decide consciously uh, not to uh, have children because they don't, maybe don't want to add another uh, consumer polluter if that happens to the world or that the human um, population should be limited rather drastically and that's they see that as that kind of contribution but on another level I think um, the, 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 the on the level of the soul one might say well uh, raising a child or raising a family is also in several respects something very basic or uh, to human beings. So you, you consciously deprive yourself of such a, a possibility for, for probably very good reasons. But it, it seems to me that discussions on this kind of um, uh, tough situations, these kind of paradoxes, uh, this un and also the uncertainty that comes with it uh, is almost never dealt with in education. And um, where, or in the, the debates on sustainability, and I think it's, it should be much more taken into the open. And I think one of the values of art, artistic practices, um, also something I learned from Mary Helga, who t brought me into this field of art-based environment education, is that um, art can uh, be a way to make uh, explicit or bring out into the open something that you carry within your inner world. So 
Think, for example, a child that might have nightmares about where the situation, where the world is at this moment, finds it's very difficult to talk about this. Or in the case of Greta Thunberg, uh, have uh, eating disorders or other disorders because of the, the larger ecological context uh, sort of is taken up in, into their uh, individual body. And the body response, this, is, this whole idea of eco-psychology, that psychology is not limited to uh, your own uh, uh, psyche or your own um, social well-being, but your, your, your well-being is related to the larger world. So you might say that people get health issues. Uh, it, there's no wonder because it's actually a healthy sign that, that their body is responding to something larger than themselves. But um, so I think art can be a way of inviting people to uh, to bring these inner worlds more to the to the surface, if you will. What's happening in in, uh, in the unconscious or in primary process, as is sometimes called, that uh, it comes to the surface. So you make, for example, a painting or you make a sculpture, and that uh, other people do that as well, and that can become the start of having a different kind of conversation. Hmm. You might even yourself, as as the the uh, the author of the the artwork, the, the poem that you write, or the whatever the dance you do, it might also surprise you yourself. But hey, this came from me. Where does it come from? Let's explore this further. And I think part of the maybe another sustainability problem is that we are so much in our brain in, in this sort of logical, rational thinking, using words and uh, nouns and, and less in touch with more a process way of orientation. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a perfect connection to the follow-up question I thought of now as well, because the, then going against my question or the framing of the question basically is to say like sustainability does not have to be so complicated. It does not have to even be a academic or a research field or whatever we want to call it. And I'm thinking also of my relatives uh, back where I grew up in Helsingland, to our north of here. Yeah, those of you who know Sweden know, know, know where it is, hopefully. Uh, but how they lived in the same place for from the Vikings, basically. So for, for over a thousand years, they lived in the same space. And you know this from the, the sea going up further inland because of the, the, the ice that was pressing down the ground and it's slowly rising. So you had the sea going in further in. So they could find like uh, these uh, wooden parts of some kind of landing for the boats that they had. So the, so the people living in the, in the actual physical same space, the same, not the same houses, but they, they dwelled in the same space for over a thousand years. And basically for me then going back to that and my experience as a kid and everything, I think it becomes that sustainability is very, in a very like simple way, being able to live in the same place for a very long time. Uh, and that's what they've done. And that's my relatives as well. Uh, my cousins or my one of my cousins now lives in the same space. But now that could be possible maybe for them. But now with the whole planet, and it's always been interconnected, but now it's hyper-connected with climate change and all of these other things. We used to have acid rain coming in from Poland and Germany in like the 80s when I grew up. But now with climate change, it's like the, the drought in the Amazon feeds back to the Arctic and it feeds back all of these feedback loops and these things that Yuan has been researching and others. So, so it feels like the places that could have continued for a very long time, uh, now also, even if they are sustainable in themselves, uh, not saying they are perfectly sustainable, but 
uh, is also now interconnected with climate change. So, so it becomes this bigger issue. Uh, but I think this is important as well that people like us that have worked a long time with this or people researching within this field also that we're, we're not uh, unnecessarily overcomplicating things. And we're also, like you said, returning to a more of a kind of bodily experience or a like you have these entry points where everybody can be part of this discussion and everybody can actually do something and work on this instead of having uh, very advanced kind of framings uh, of this that kind of makes people shy away from from working on this as well. So I think that's important. Um, maybe we should connect. I don't know. We've talked quite a lot about art, but I think maybe uh, going back also to somewhere where we started as well, um, I, I included in when we talked about this before we started the recording or the email I sent with some of the kind of questions that I had, uh, the quote from Joanna Macy in one of the interviews, uh, and she basically, I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but she talked uh, about, or she was asked basically, why do you do the work do you do? Uh, and the finishing line is like, when things fall apart, we don't turn on each other. So it has this kind of like, we work on this, these things, maybe not to perfectly succeed in what we're doing or not reach this perfect state of sustainability, but actually to, to get people to behave in a way towards each other uh, in a decent way or as a, yeah, not a doing violence upon others. So, so why would you say you do the work that you do now in the world? Uh, and, and why, what do you want the students that you teach? What do you want, what, what do you want to send with them that, that they don't lose sight of when they leave the educational situation or when you work with this wild painting and the painting? Uh, mm. What do you want people to, to actually not forget and to take with them basically? Yeah, that's quite a question. Maybe to start with that, your, your reference to uh, Joanna Macy, and I'm very much inspired by her work and also her approach. But it, it was also to me a kind of startling, this, this end of this quote that she says, that maybe in the end I do it that, that we don't get at each other's throat. And you might say that that scenario, that is the likelihood of this idea of social collapse that you have with people like Jem Bandel and the deep adaptation themselves, is that we should prepare ourselves for uh, the times that are coming when there are shortages of food, shortages of water, droughts, and so that, that we will get what is sometimes referred to as the Mad Max scenario, that you have tribes of people uh, roaming around and, uh, in competition with each other and yeah, the kind of chaos but that we might expect and that we maybe the approach of uh, people like Joanna Macy is to bearing witness or staying with the trouble, as Donna Haraway calls it, uh, equip us better to, to face these times that, that we, we have practices of nonviolent action, nonviolent communication, uh, or also building a community, uh, supporting each other in an affirmative way. But I think that this is all uh, very useful to, to, to sort of dare to uh, look into this, uh, this possible uh, future scenario, this, this idea of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche that uh, you should be daring to look into the ab abyss, but he also added, if, if you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back into you. So it also goes as a surprise if, if, you, if you're too much preoccupied with the scenarios and the, the, the things that the future may have in store of us, that it totally overwhelms you and at some point might suffocate you. So that is something that I wouldn't want to pass on. But I mean, I'm all for that we should be, look, have a realistic eye and not sort of deny in any way what 
is maybe likely. But on the other hand, I would also think uh, that it's important not to uh, uh, be totally uh, impacted by, by this. Uh, so that that's, it becomes part of all the activities, uh, overrules the other activities that you might want to take on. So from, from that reason, I think the the idea is at least important to me that of the nourishment of the soul. Um, Recently, this is uh, activity going on initiated by uh, Dugald Hein of the, the, the climate sessions. It's sort of like a gathering where people speak like, uh, interestingly enough, several people that also have been at the climate existence uh, conferences like uh, Vanessa Andriotti and uh, um, uh, Martin Shaw, or he has been at uh, Samus. But Martin Shaw also had a similar idea of what he called working both with wonder and grief. So the, the wonder is maybe this aspect of what nourishes you, the, the sense of wonder, and also the ability to grieve, to, to, to relate to the pain and, and the sorrow, and to not turn a blind eye to, to this, this aspect. But to me, it's um, maybe the, this sense of wonder or this sense of nourishment, and maybe that relates to wild painting, uh, is, um, you might say, well, it, isn't this not something very romantic or to engage with landscape painting or other art forms where we need everybody on deck. We should roll up our sleeves and you know, we have to get to work right away. Action is needed and, and um, to be engaged in painting is like a luxury that you uh, uh, maybe do in your free hours. And I, I would turn this around maybe that uh, that it is important for people to to find the sources of inspiration, the because, for example, through this wild painting or through painting in the landscape, you, you might find something, some point of entry, a point of access, especially if you have never done it before, that um, you have forgotten maybe since the time that you were a child. It's um, I often see this happening when I'm so maybe I should say a bit that wild painting is that you. It's this idea that you work as a group outside in an area less impacted by humans, so therefore the wild aspect. But also it's like making art in a wild way, in a less uh, sort of strict or, well, it, sometimes it can be strict, but it's wild in the sense that you try to um, to work in maybe uh, ways that participants never have done before, in that sense, opening up to something new. So, so what I sometimes do as an activity is that we start painting at, in the summer at eight o'clock in the evening. And you know, this part of Europe, it's, it's starting to get uh, darker. And what happens if you paint then is that you, at some point you don't see the color distinguishments so clearly anymore. It just becomes a scale of light and dark. So the, the, on the scale that you have grays in between, and the, the kind of grayish value of uh, blue might be the same as, as the value that red may, ha may have. So, in other words, you're less in control of how to use the paintings, or the, the paints, and you, you find yourself in a landscape that is sort of turning towards the night. And uh, the whole active working day, or the day that you are fully present, is sort of going behind you slowly. And you get into this other mode. It also often happens with people who, who uh, wander that they go uh, in the evening, they go for an uh, evening hike just after dinner or so. It's often referred to by, also by philosophers and poets as a sort of special moment of day. The colors change and there's a certain silence sort of that to open up to other um, uh, possibilities or other ways of relating to experience. 
And uh, what people then report is that when they do these activities of wild painting is that it is, um, it can be like an, a moment of recognition or re remembrance of something that they somehow forgot. So I, I see my own role then sometimes as not somebody who is as a teacher uh, pointing people in a certain direction, but more like somebody um, uh, offering a, an invitation, like this is what we're going to do. But that the real work, um, a bit like uh, Joanna Macy's idea of work, but the, the real work is done by the people themselves. So it's like they have maybe some window locked inside of themselves and they open it themselves uh, so that they attend to what it is to, to paint at that moment of the day or to use different colors than the usual as a kind of um, allowing themselves to do something that they uh, would maybe not do if they would uh, paint on their own accord and in their own uh, way. And I think that, that these uh, activities are maybe much more vital or important than we might appreciate them usually. It's not like doing a hobby, but it, in a situation where you see around you that people working with uh, activist uh, work, uh, so working in uh, Extinction Rebellion, for example, or other movements, uh, Greenpeace, try to turn things around. But often at some point people sooner or later get burnout or stressed or even uh, uh, some point maybe get, become uh, ironic or cynical, sort of not believing in it anymore. And that has in its own way a sort of kind of radiating effects on, on their uh, the surroundings that uh, if a, a person who have, of, of whom all the energy is kind of sucked out, uh, such a person is it's a bit unlikely that he or she is going to inspire other people to carry on or to do similar ways. So, so if you are active, if you're fully conscious of what's going on in the world, uh, you, you find a need or uh, you want to contribute to making a change, I think it is very important to, to be very careful uh, about the sources that keep you going. And it doesn't necessarily have to be art, but it can be a quiet spot, for example, somewhere in a natural area that you are a pick particularly uh, attracted to but that you have some kind of uh, source to ground yourself, to find inspiration, to, to maybe, it's awful uh, metaphor, but to recharge your batteries, but so that you're able to, to maintain yourself and to be able to again face um, the darkness, to, to look into the abyss. Um, so it's a bit like a balancing act maybe that you, it's uh, almost in a way like parallel activities, that the parallel is that you, you have one foot in, in the one, the, you might say the aesthetic, the, the approaching the world through the senses, through direct activity, so that there is no screen between you and the natural world, for example, you have this direct contact. Also, you're in touch with the, the sources that nourish you, that feed you, that inspire you, that, that give you oxygen. And at the same time, you have your other foot in, in the kind of yeah, more negative or more alarming uh, climate emergency aspects um, and you don't uh, withdraw. So you, you, you don't sweep it under the carpet as if it's not existing. You don't make yourself too big. You say, well, we're going to fix this. Uh, it's, it's our generation who's going to do this. So that you, it, it's um, being able to navigate the, these two fields. And when I was in uh, Sweden uh, at Clemens, we sometimes talked about the, the, sort of the concept I'm sort of exploring in this context is of mindful schizophrenia. And as my, it may sound a bit uh, over, overdone, but 
when I say schizophrenia is a very serious condition, but uh, but in its start, the way the, the word became, it's like that you are the person is living in more than one universe at the same time. So the, the, the ability or, or the, the the condition of being in, in two worlds and in a way not being able to, to sort this out, that you can keep your uh, proper uh, balance in society as it is now. So uh, and. I would say with a mindful schizophrenia, it's that this condition of being split, being in more than one world, is uh, that you uh, don't deny this, that you don't say, well, I'm not split, uh, I, I am living my life in perfect uh, harmony and, and I, I, I do the things that are needed for the, to, to uh, fight ecological crisis, that you're it is totally black and white, uh, totally pure or, or uh, unpure. And that you that you um, accept as being split or being uh, in cognitive dissonance, as it's sometimes called. That you, you 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 do one thing, but you 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 believe something else. You you your thoughts go in another direction. So that you you accept this splitness, this being split, and you do this not just a, a little, but you do this mindfully. So the mindfulness is, is for example, this example that's often given that you 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 you're maybe blindfolded and you get to taste. Uh, you don't know it maybe yet, but you get to taste a, a, a raisin and you try to taste it in full presence as if you first first time in your life you, you taste a, a raisin. So all the, the, the taste, the, the, the texture of the raisin, you, you, with all your presence you are in the here and now uh, with this experience of uh, um, eating or um, sw uh, you know, having a raisin in your mouth. So the, the mindful schizophrenia is that you you accept this 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 uh, being in more than one uh, world. So you 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 know, for example, that everybody should maybe put everything aside to do everything that's possible to fight the ecological crisis. And yet you go out painting in some forest, or you make music. Uh, you waste your time making art. Uh, you you are okay with it. You, you don't uh, say to yourself. I'm uh, schizophrenic or I'm uh, making a mess of it so that you, you can in a way live with these contradictions, accept them. Yeah, and I think I think there's also for me in, in education and thinking about this, that there's also this kind of conflict or schizophrenia in that situation with trying to be honest as an educator. You want these students not to have some kind of sugar-coated version of how bad things are in the world. You don't want to say like, well, there's fires in Australia and then just leave it at that. You want to bring up the, the things you found yourself, whether it's like 1 billion animals dead or these kind of things. But then again, you don't want to get the students kind of falling down a hole uh, and not getting out of there. And, and it's really hard also because you would not normally in a syllabus put up things that I would think like you want to develop the students courage or you want to develop the students kind of integrity and self-worth and all of those things that kind of is the foundation for actually being able to do something meaningful with these issues and work and in life in general uh, in the world. So, so, and we also have this kind of an instrumental kind of view upon education where it's, yeah, it's more maybe geared towards an engineering kind of, idea of education than, than this kind of building uh, idea. But that's another topic. But I think we should wrap up here. Uh, we, we should have the last question that, uh, and I've asked this in other contexts, uh, but, but it's a, the time machine question. 
Um, if you travel back to the mid 80s, I picked that time. Um, uh, what would you say to a younger version of yourself? What would be the thing to like, this is the thing in life to remember going forward? Yeah. yeah I, I've been pondering a bit on this question that sort of the, the, the way you can approach it for that, like, that is like a logical impossibility. But I, I would say, in a way, in some profound sense, you, you're doing okay in the 80s, that uh, uh, the things that I did, for example, spending much of my time on working as, skill, uh, as a cultural anthropology researcher, or later moving to human rights for indigenous peoples, um, all um, in a way were building blocks to who I am right now. So it's kind of hard to say, well, if I, if I know what I know, how I should have made another choice, maybe in the 80s. There was in the, in the Netherlands in, in the 90s a very interesting TV series called um, On Beauty and Consolation, uh, where they interviewed about 20 people about scientists, uh, artists, musicians, about how for them maybe the art or working with uh, pure science was some kind of consolation, um, or the beauty of it provided perhaps some kind of consolation. And uh, one of the people who participated was George Konrad, a writer from Hungary. And he said something very interesting, I think. He, he said, if you ask people uh, what is the meaning of their life, everybody responds by saying, telling their life story. So I, I think that there's much truth in that because you kind of how you look at meaning it is sort of found back in your life story. So for me, that, in that sense, there is continuity um, between how I was in the 80s or 70s or, or 90s. So yeah from that sense i may say i should have for example maybe um, immerse myself more deeply more early on into the art world then i would have made different arts and then i would have maybe been less engaged with art education so in that sense there is no regrets uh, about uh, how i was in the 80s and moved on to where i'm now yeah yeah and that's i think that's maybe a good way to end this as well to to the listeners to kind of maybe ground ourselves in that and saying like you're okay uh, but i would also add maybe that that uh, you have time even if you're like a 75 year old listener or um th th there is time still time for all of us but also you have time i mean there, as long as we're still alive there's so many things that, that we can change and also as a like collective humanity on this planet there there is still time to do so many things but also be surprised by life and uh, by people and the planet. Yeah, maybe to add to that, that e even uh, in like, uh, always maybe the possibility to find new openings, the also part of it might be to, to work with whatever is limiting you right now, the, that the resistance that you experience, the, the, the frames that you find yourself in that confine you, to try to twist feeling being locked in, to, to pay attention to what is happening to me in this situ situation, what kind of learning possibilities are here, even within this, uh, these limits? And um, to look at it, uh, hey, this is interesting that this is happening here with me or with these people, and to see what makes it interesting, what, what, if you would do it differently, how you would do it then, but sort of to, to have always an active relationship of paying attention to what's, what, where you find yourself and what overcomes you, and how you, you yourself act within this, engage with this. All right. Um, 
Thank you so much, Jan, uh, and thanks for everything. And as we said in the beginning, this is a longer conversation, um, but, but this is a good start. We, we didn't get a break even. Uh, there were so many things to, to discuss. We forgot about, or I forgot about the break. So thank you, uh, and uh, we'll keep uh, bringing in guests and continuing this podcast series uh, on all sorts of topics. And if you want to leave a message, as I said in the beginning, in the anchor.fm slash Seamus voice uh, message thing or in social media, you can do that. Suggest guests or questions or topics that you want to uh, bring into the podcast. So um, thank you, Jan, again. My pleasure. Until we meet again, Daniel. Yes. <laughs>